This morning, let's turn to the Gospel of Mark, if you could. Mark chapter 8. A basic message this morning about who Jesus is, what he came to do, the manner in which he did it, and how that affects you and me. Mark chapter 8, 29 to 31. In the center of Mark, in the center of Matthew, and in the center of Luke, we have the same story. The centerpiece of the gospel, where the question Jesus asks is, what's the general opinion of me? Who do people say that I am? And they gave all kinds of answers. But in verse 29, he specifically asks his disciples, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. Now don't you find that a bit contradictory to our thinking? Now I know who Jesus is. Jesus says, keep this a secret and keep it quiet. Why does he say that? Then he goes on to say, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. I want you to note three terms that are used in these verses to describe who Jesus is. Peter refers to Jesus as the Christ, or another alternative word for that would be the Messiah. He's the Christ, he's the Messiah. And then Jesus, though he accepts the term, he deflects it and he changes it. And he refers to himself not as the Messiah, but he refers to himself as the Son of Man. And that's the second term. He's the Christ. He's the Son of Man. And the third term I want you to pay attention to is the word suffer. Because in the minds of the general population who are expecting the Messiah to come, they didn't equate him with being necessarily the Son of Man, and they certainly didn't expect him to do any suffering. And that's why Jesus says, don't tell anybody. You got the terminology right, but your understanding of what that means is wrong. And I don't want you to go preaching a gospel that does not correctly project who I am to the masses of the people. So why does he change that term to the Son of Man? Why does he connect the image of the Son of Man with suffering? And what did Jesus come to do? These are basic questions upon which our faith is built, upon which the church is built. In Matthew's version of this very same story, he would say to Peter, Blessed are you, uh, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then he says, it's upon this rock, upon this understanding, upon this spirit-given revelation of who I am, I can build my church. And if we don't know who Jesus is, we have no foundation to build upon. The church is built upon this understanding of the identity of Jesus. I want us to go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 12. Genesis, chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. When the Lord originally called somebody by the name of Abram, of course, we know better as Abraham. It says in these verses, now make the connection between what Peter said and what Jesus said and this, these verses in Genesis in a minute. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. 
Make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those that bless you. I will curse those that curse you. And in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God chose Abraham to begin the story of redemption. From Abraham, a great nation would come forth, the nation of Israel. And through that nation of Israel that would come from the loins of Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Let's go back even further in our Bibles to the beginning of Genesis where we see that we know that Adam and the woman that came out of Adam, who was later named Eve, they came as God's image bearers. And they were created to rule. God said, let them have dominion over all that he has created. And they were created to rule the rest of creation under God. Because of their sin, this agenda of them ruling on behalf of God was lost, it was distorted, and instead of ruling, man became ruled. He became subject to the power of sin. When you get the first 11 chapters of Genesis, or more specifically chapter 3 to 11, we see how instead of ruling, man became ruled by the power of sin. If you just read those chapters 3 to 11 of the book of Genesis, we see how sin affected the individual, Adam and his wife. We see how sin affected the family unit, Cain and Abel, their children. We see how sin affected society, where they built cities in rebellion against God. And by the time you get to chapter 11, you see how sin has affected the entire human race, summed up in the story of the Tower of Babel, where the whole world is in defiance and in rebellion against God. And in chapters 3 to 11, you see the power of sin dominating the entire human race. Man was created to rule God's creation but instead he's dominated by the power of sin. God responds to this difficulty from this problem with Genesis chapter 12. How does God respond? How does he set in motion redemption? He does it by calling Abraham. And for the sake of repetition, to underline it in our hearts and in our minds, let me say it again. From Abraham... God would create a people, a nation. That nation was to be blessed. That nation was to bear his image. And through his people, God would give witness to the rest of the world. And all the families of the earth, all the other nations of the world would be blessed or would be saved because of the light that exists in God's people. That's the the program. That is how God decided he would save the nations of the world. Now let's get that in our hearts very well, because I think a lot of times we forget that, and we skip right ahead to the New Testament of Jesus dying on the cross, and we forgot the beginning of the program. God chooses an individual, makes a great nation out of him. They are to be blessed, and through that nation, the rest of the families of the earth would come in to the family of God. That is the original agenda. However, we can quickly, as we read through our Bibles and read through our Old Testaments, we see that we hit problem after problem after problem. And the nation of Israel never, that word is N-E-V-E-R, never fulfilled its purpose. Even if you read through all the way from Genesis to Malachi to the end of the Old Testament, you discover that Israel as a nation has not achieved its goal. It has strayed far from its mandate. 
The story of Old Testament Israel is full of challenges, declines, backslidings, failures, and most devastating of all, exiles into foreign domination. Now here's the question. If God has chosen Israel to be the means of salvation to the rest of the world, and Israel itself has failed to live up to its purpose and to live up to its calling, well, here's the question. If Israel itself needs saving, if Israel itself is not saved, then how can the rest of the world be saved since it's to be through Israel that all the nations of the world are to be blessed? Read your Old Testament prophets, and that is a theme and a question they repeatedly ask over and over and over again. How does this relate to Jesus? Well, Jesus came to solve the problem. Amen. I'll say that again because it's worth an amen. Jesus came to solve the problem. Alright? But how do we understand the coming of Jesus? In the light of the original agenda of how the nations of the world would be reached, how does Jesus solve the problem of the failure of the nation of Israel? What Jesus is going to do is he's going to bring the story of Israel to its rightful resolution. In order to fully comprehend and understand the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you have to approach those four Gospel writings, those four stories about Jesus, with this mindset. Jesus came to resolve the problem of Israel's failure. And if we try to preach the gospel outside of that context, we're missing so much of what's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So I'll say it again. Jesus came to resolve the problem of Israel's failure. To bring it to its rightful resolution. And so all the terms that we use about Jesus, He's the Christ, or you could say the Messiah. He's the Son of Man. Or, as we will see, he's the suffering servant of the Lord. All those three titles that we read there in Mark chapter 8, the Christ, the Son of Man, and the one who must suffer, a reference to Isaiah's prophecy about someone called the suffering servant of the Lord. All those three terms deal with the the mission to the nation of Israel. Sometimes people would ask the question, Well, why does Jesus have to be Israel's Messiah to be my personal Savior? And a lot of times there's a disconnect in our thinking. It's because we don't see why Jesus came. It's the first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Is what the scripture says over and over and over again. Before we can go to the Gentiles, the problem with the Jew first has to be solved. Is that not what your Bible says? First to the Jew... Then to the Gentile. To repeat, before you go to the Gentiles, the problem with the Jew has to be resolved. Jesus cannot be the Savior of the world until He is first the Savior of the Jew. That is the theme that's found in the book of Romans especially. That's the theme that's in all four of the Gospels. So how does the New Testament then introduce Jesus? If you go back to Matthew chapter 1... How many, when you read the Gospel of Matthew, skip over chapter 1, verses 1 to 17? How many will admit that you skip right over it? Why is it when we have a Christmas program or a Christmas story, or we're going to preach about Christmas messages, that we skip over the introduction to the Christmas story, Matthew 1, verses 1 to 17? It's one of those very inspirational forces the scriptures that says, and -and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and and then he begat so-and-so, and and he begat so-and-so. And in chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, you work through 42 begats. Isn't that inspiring stuff? Why does Matthew going to introduce you in chapter 1 and verse 1 as Jesus Christ, the Son of David, 
the son of Abraham. Why does he do that? The way that Matthew writes this is interesting. Because he's going to divide this into three time periods of 14 generations each. He does this very meticulously and he works it out mathematically. From Abraham to David, he's the son of Abraham, he's the son of David. From Abraham to David is 14 generations. And then from David to the time the the nation of Judah went into the Babylonian exile is 14 generations. And then from the return from the exile to the time of Jesus is 14 generations. Is that significant? And why is that significant? And why does Abraham make a case for this in order to tell us who Jesus is? The reason he wants to identify Jesus you know, as, um, as, as this person is because the story of Jesus puts an end to the story of Israel. It brings it to its finish. What Jesus came to do is not divorced from Abraham. It's not divorced through David. God began something in Abraham, worked it through 14 generations, so they got to David. A new covenant comes with David. God keeps working his plan for the next 14 generations until they go into exile. And the whole plan seems to be frustrated. And then God brings them back from exile, another 14 generations, and Jesus has come to finish the story. He's the last chapter of the book, but you can't understand the last chapter of the book unless you read the rest of the book first. Jesus has come to finish the story of Israel because God's original plan was that through Abraham and the nation that would come from him, that's how salvation would come to the ends of the earth. That has never, never changed. But the problem is this. Israel itself is far from God. And when they went into Babylonian captivity, they were there for seven decades. They geographically came out of that captivity, went back to the promised land, but spiritually they have never recovered. They are, spiritually speaking, still in exile, and Israel itself needs to be saved. Israel itself needs to be rescued. So that's why Jesus is sent first to Israel. Do you remember those scriptures who said, I'm not sent to the lost sheep of those. I'm sent to Israel. Only preach to Israel first. And he has a mission to accomplish to Israel first. And once that mission to Israel is accomplished, then from there to the ends of the earth. If we want to understand our Gospels, this is the mindset by which we must read them. Our difficulty, a lot of times when we read the Gospels, that we have disconnected the coming of Jesus from his roots and from his mission found in the Old Testament. I ask the question again, have we failed to see that the covenant of Abraham and the following story of Israel is God's answer to the problem of sin? That's how he responds to the problem of sin. God's original plan was not scrapped, and Jesus doesn't come with a different plan. He comes to fulfill the original plan, not replace it with some other plan. We understand that. He comes to fulfill the original plan. Israel was birthed by God, given a mandate to be the source of blessing to all the nations of the world. This has never changed. So Jesus has got to bring salvation to Israel, who's far from what God wants them to be. In order to do that, what Jesus is going to do, he's going to come to Israel as their Messiah, as the Christ, as the Son of Man, as the suffering servant, all scriptures that apply to Israel. And what he's going to do is he's going to take on the role of Israel himself. And in his own person, he's going to become Israel And he's going to be the people of God. And he's going to be that suffering servant. He's going to be that son of man. He's going to be that Christ. And in his own person, recreate the nation of Israel 
so that they can be the blessing to the rest of the world. Otherwise, there's no salvation for you and me. Jesus has to do this because this is the plan. God doesn't go to plan B. It's still, through his people, all the nations of the family, all the families of the earth would be blessed. This is how the New Testament reads. And if you want to make sense of the New Testament, that's the mindset in which we must approach it. So that first group of 14, Abraham to David, what we discover in that first period of history, those first 14 generations, when God began the story of redemption with the call of Abraham, we see that God elected Israel to be his chosen son. Now, when God said to Jesus at the baptism, you're my beloved son, it has all sorts of implications in the mind of Jesus, who really knows his Old Testament well. But God elected Israel, that nation, to be his chosen son. When they were in bondage in Egypt, God redeemed them by grace in the story of the Exodus. And here's a good question for you, a simple answer. It's not a trick question, but what came first? God redeeming his people or God giving his law? Simple question. What came first? Did he take him out of Egypt and then give him his law? Or did he give him the law and expect him to obey it and then brought him out of Israel? Which happened first? Grace came first. That's important. God, for no reason except he set his heart upon them because he loved them, redeemed them, though there was nothing worthy in them, they were probably in their hearts cursing God for all the, the bondage they had been in for century after century after century, but pure act of grace, a pure act of love, God redeemed his people simply for love's sake. Aren't you glad God doesn't deal with you because you deserve to be dealt with? Amen? Purely for love's sake. He does this. And once he brings them out of the bondage of Egypt, then he gave them the law. Would you please accept this law as your grateful response to what I have done for you? I asked the question, when you got married and you said your wedding vows to your spouse, did you put yourself under legalism? Careful how you answer the question, please. I promise to be true to you and faithful to you and I'll have no other spouses except you. Is that legalism? Do you feel bound by legalism because you make such a covenant and such a pledge? Well, if you say yes, we will have marriage counseling after. <laughs> no, it is simply... The response of gratitude. Because I've overwhelmed by your grace. Because I'm overwhelmed by your love. Because I have found fulfillment in you. I covenant the rest of my life to be true to you and you only. That's not legalism. That's the obligation of a heart full of love. You follow what I'm saying? And, and these Ten Commandments, these laws that God gave to Israel, are not legalism. I think the law has, has received the wrong end of the stick so many times in the way we preach. How I love your law, the psalmist said. It's my delight day and night. I meditate in it continuously. Your law is like pure gold to me. Doesn't sound like legalism, does it? It sounds like a joy. Sounds like a joy. So, God asking His people, I will be your God, you will be my people, here's my covenant. In other words, I want to marry you, and here's your wedding vows, back to me. When you think of it that way, there's no legalism about it. But it's the expression of love back to the one who redeemed us. Now the reason God gave this law, and I can't take the time because it's a whole series of messages in itself, but one of the reasons, according to the teaching of the book of Deuteronomy, that God asked His people to embrace this law is because if they would embrace the law, 
they would be showing the nature and the character of God. The world can see what God is like by the people who keep the laws of God. You would be a light to the world. And the world would understand God's power and God's character and God's nature. The world would understand what mercy is. The world would understand what compassion is. The world would understand what sacrifice and love is. Why? By looking at God's people who keep the law. And so how do we give a testimony to the world? When the world asks, what is God like? The answer we are to give them, just look at the church. Can we give that answer to the world? Just look at the church. Look at His people. Look at the people overwhelmed by grace. Look at the people who have accepted that covenant with God and who live out that covenant of God. And the nature of God is transformed in them and recreated in them as they adhere to the law. You want to know what God is like? Look at His people. And so God saved them, delivered them, redeemed them, gave them the law so they would display His nature and His character to the world. And through Israel, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Uh, They failed. They failed. But they were also promised an inheritance. And in those 14 generations from Abraham to David, the nation grows By the time David becomes the king of Israel, they have indeed become a great nation. And they are in the promised land under God's blessing and God's protection. Phase one of the story of why Jesus came. When you get to the next period from David to the exile to Babylon, another 14 generations, we discover that David himself fell. We discover his son Solomon really messed up the testimony of Israel. We see that through their fall and through their continuous sin and usurpation of authority, and instead of ruling for God, they want to rule for themselves. This tendency in the human heart, what we see is the people of God, the 12 nations, or the 12 tribes, ended up divided into two separate nations. You've got 10 tribes becoming northern Israel and two tribes becoming southern Judah. The northern 10 tribes known as Israel were written out of history when they were conquered by the Assyrian Empire, never, ever, ever to be independent ever again in all their history, lost to the world as they were conquered. The other two tribes, known as Judah, would finally, years later, also go into exile. They would go into captivity under Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. During this time of the kings, from David to the exile, and even after the exile, that's when your Old Testament prophets, your minor prophets and your major prophets, always begin to speak into the nation. When you listen to the voice of those prophets speak to the nation as they are failing the purpose of God, failing to understand why God called them to be His people, failing to be the light of the world to the nations. You read those minor prophets, you read those major prophets, and we'll see this, that God is always in control of world history. Now that's a good thing to know. I don't care what you see on the news and television, God is in control of world history. Amen. But the prophets are constantly preaching the moral character of God, and they are constantly preaching and holding the people accountable to that covenant, accountable to the law, and demanding that they conform to the covenant of the law that God gave them. And they were given this constant reminder that all external religious ritual is worthless if it's not accompanied by practical social justice. Keep all the laws you want, but if you're not a person of compassion, of sacrifice, and of love, it means nothing to God. And all the prophets constantly say, catch the heart of the covenant, catch the heart of the covenant, catch the purpose of the whole thing. Don't just be external But catch the reason. You're to be a light to the rest of the world. 
demonstrating compassion and practical social justice. But the nation has failed to respond. The nation fails to serve the purpose of God. Therefore, God allows them, due to their sin, to be taken captive into foreign exile where the nation is useless as far as their purpose is concerned. Not only do the nations of the world need saving, but the vehicle called Israel needs to be saved as well. That's your Old Testament. That's part two of the story of Jesus. Part three of the story of Jesus is the next 14 generations from the time they came back from exile to the end of the Old Testament to the birth of Jesus. Part three, chapter three, that is introducing why Jesus came into the world. Geographically, the exile in Babylon lasted for seven decades. God raised up a Persian king by the name of Cyrus who conquered Babylon and allowed the captive Israelites to go back to their promised land. Geographically, they were restored to their promised land, but they are far from God spiritually. Very far from God spiritually. When the Old Testament closes with Malachi, the last prophet, they are still in spiritual exile from God. Ezekiel had given a prophecy about the Spirit coming back into the temple that would be built. The temple was built, but there was no return of the Spirit. Malachi had prophesied that the Lord would suddenly return to that temple. It had not happened either. So much left unfulfilled. Where is the question? Where is the fulfillment of God's promises? The burning question by the time Jesus came onto the scene is, when will God restore the nation of Israel? When will he put an end to this exile? When will we be set free and liberated? Now, as the New Testament opens and we get to the story of Jesus, it is simply, you've seen what the problem is in those first three chapters. Now you get to chapter 4, the birth of Jesus, and you're going to see how he resolves the problems made in those first three chapters. When the New Testament opens, the nation is still under foreign domination. It was under Babylonian power, under Persian power, under Greek power, now it's under Roman power. And the Israelite is sick and tired of being under Gentile domination. But they're under Roman power. But here's the important thing. They are still far from God. As a matter of fact, their whole nation has been given themselves over to false assumptions. When you read the New Testament, Israel, their self-understanding is far off the mark. They have long lost why God created the nation. They've long lost their sense of destiny. They have long lost what their purpose was to be in the world. In their lostness, they have created false expectations of what the Messiah should be. They have long departed from the true intent and the true interpretation of the law. They have long missed the concept of what the kingdom of heaven is all about. They are very ignorant of who the Son of Man would be. They have a very faulty understanding of who the new King David is supposed to be. They don't understand what it means that Elijah must first come. They have simply blown it. They are so far from God on every issue. They're far, far from God on every issue. They look for an abrupt and cataclysmic end to the present time when some Messiah of some sort would come with thunder and lightning and destroy all the powers in, in a great war and just take over and liberate Israel and make them dominant over the rest of the world. They are so far off the mark. What they got instead was a baby born in a manger far from their expectations. They did not recognize God's answer to their problem and thus rejected Him because He did not meet any of their erroneous expectations at all. Jesus came to solve the problem. Israel itself needs to be saved before it can become a light to the nations. According to the prophecy of Isaiah, Israel was to be the servant of the Lord for the sake of the nations.
they fail. But one of the key scriptures in Isaiah about the servant of the Lord, a specific person who's unnamed, except generically called Israel and Jacob a couple of times, but there's no name given to him besides that, is that the nation, in order to fix the problem, has to be narrowed down to one individual. And that one individual has to be a son of Israel. That one, Israel, one individual has to take on the role of Israel. That one individual has to take on the call of Israel. That one individual has to take on the responsibilities of Israel. That one individual has to live a life of perfect obedience to please his father at all time so that he could take the shoulder, the responsibilities given to the nation of Israel to be their Messiah, to be the Son of Man, to be the suffering servant so that God's covenant with Abraham to have a people who can bless the nations of the world would be fulfilled. And the servant of the Lord is narrowed down from a nation to an individual. And Jesus steps into their role of being Israel. You follow what I'm saying? This is the burden of Isaiah chapter 42 to chapter 43. To accomplish these goals, Jesus has to come in and he's confronted with everything that's wrong with Israel. And he has to redefine everything about Israel's self-understanding. He has to reconstitute the nation. Why did Jesus choose 12 disciples? Why didn't he choose 10? Why didn't he choose 13? Why did he take 12? Because he's going to redefine and reconstitute who Israel is really is. Why does Jesus bring his interpretation on the uncommentary of the law in the Sermon on the Mount so forcefully against the scribes and the Pharisees? Because they have totally misread and misunderstood the purpose of the law. They thought it would made them righteous or something when it's supposed to make them a light to the rest of the world. They totally blew it. Totally misunderstood what it is. And so Jesus in his preaching and his teaching in the four Gospels is answering questions like this. Who really are the people of God? What is the true nature of God? Who is the real Israel? What's the purpose of the law? And Jesus was in constant conflict with the religious authorities over every one of those questions because they were so far removed from the truth. Let's just look at a couple of ways in which Jesus stepped into the role of Israel. For instance, when Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River, remember God the Father speaks to him? Matthew 3.17, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Three scriptures are alluded to there. When he says, This is my beloved Son, that's Psalm 2. When he says, In whom I am well pleased, that's Isaiah 42. And my beloved Son is also referenced to Genesis 22. In Psalm chapter 2, what you have here is the coronation of a king. That God has a son that he has set to be the king of his kingdom. When David is crowned, the psalm was spoken about his coronation. We have a king in the kingdom. When you read Isaiah 42, it's about the servant of the Lord. Now, wait a second. That doesn't compute to you and me, because in the natural way the world thinks, how can the king and the servant be the same person? How's that possible? How can the king and the servant be the same person? And this is what makes the kingdom of heaven so dramatically different from the kingdoms of this world. Because what God is saying is that I am not like the nations of this world. When those disciples were contesting for the right hand and the left hand to sit with Jesus in his kingdom, they were thinking like the world thinks. And God has to say, Jesus has to say, my kingdom doesn't work that way. In the world we dominate one another, but in the kingdom of heaven we express our authority through sacrifice and love. If we embrace the laws of God, we are people of sacrifice and we are people of love. And that's how we express the authority of God through service, through compassion, through mercy, through self-sacrifice and giving ourselves away in love. That's how we rule in the kingdom of heaven. 
And so when he identifies Jesus as the king and at the same time as a suffering servant, he's making a statement that God is not like the nations of this world. He does not rule by dominion, domination. He rules by serving. The character of God is one of mercy, compassion, and self-giving for the sake of others. And that's how the authority of the kingdom of heaven is expressed. God made that known when Jesus was baptized. But there's also a reference to Genesis 22. Abraham, take your only son, your only beloved son. Well, you know the story there. And what was being taught by reference to that story was very simple. The self-giving would end up in sacrificial death for the sake of others. And that's how the kingdom of heaven is introduced into the world. So this identity of Jesus is wrapped up in being a king, in being a servant, and in sacrifice. Complete contrary to everything that they expected. So Jesus is the king of the kingdom of heaven. His aims are to be accomplished, not by triumphalist domination, but they would be accomplished by being a suffering servant, even to the point of death. The goal of God would be accomplished by Jesus being rejected, by suffering and death. That's the theme of the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 42 to Isaiah chapter 53. And that's all made known when Jesus begins his public ministry at the baptism. That's all that is revealed. Jesus, after his baptism, is immediately thrust into the wilderness for 40 days. The Spirit doesn't lead him there. Read the Greek language. The Spirit drives him into the wilderness where he's going to be tested. In those 40 days, what happens to Jesus is he relives the entire 40-year history of Israel in the wilderness. Every trial and temptation that happened to natural Israel in 40 years happened to Jesus in those 40 days in the wilderness. In 40 years, Israel as a nation failed and failed and failed and failed and failed to keep the covenant with God. Constantly failed. But Jesus came through that temptation and submitted to that covenant and submitted to the law and submitted to it entirely and he came out in absolute obedience. He became Israel, but not the disobedient son. He is the obedient son and he becomes the nation of Israel in his own person. You follow what we're saying here? This is how we read the Gospels. Contrary to their expectations, Jesus will restore Israel, not by domination, but by taking on the consequences of their disobedience, being raised from the dead, and reconstituting them by the power of the Spirit. That's how he would do it. Jesus, in his public ministry, announces that the kingdom has finally got here. All the way from Adam, they were created to rule God's creation. They forfeited it. God created Israel to rule on his behalf. They forfeited it. Finally, there's someone who brings the message of the kingdom into force. The kingdom of heaven has arrived. In the person of Jesus, God has come to rule. Amen. That's what the gospel is. Jesus is king. That's our gospel. Jesus is the king. And if he's the king, something is required of us. What would that be? Submission. Obedience. Accepting his covenant because we are people full of gratitude. Who return his love by submitting to his law so that the lost world can see what God is like. The king has arrived. Well, unfortunately, as we read through even the Gospels, the rule of God through Jesus was rejected by Israel. Though Jesus was known to do good everywhere he went, though he healed and though he rescued people from all sorts of problems, though he healed and forgave and saved all sorts of people, the religious authorities 
decided to put him to death because they challenged, he challenged their self-understanding. They got rid of him. So Jesus was crucified outside of Jerusalem, but by this act, the world had sunk to its lowest depth of rebellion possible. The deepest sin imaginable. But what Israel did not know was that Jesus was actually entering in to their rebellion. Their suffering. He suffered the death they deserved for breaking the covenant. He was dying their death and he was shouldering their sins and the punishment for their sins. What they did not know, what they missed entirely, is that is this way of dying as a servant is the only true way of living and making peace in the world. We rule not by domination. We rule by sacrificial love and giving our lives away. They didn't get that. But their salvation depended upon Jesus fulfilling the law. They didn't get it. What they didn't know that the cross was really the crown. And the only, they didn't know that the only way have, to have power is to surrender it. They had so become like the kingdoms of the world that they took those worldly concepts and put it on the church. They put it on the kingdom of heaven. They put it on God himself. And Jesus has to change it. So they kill him. They didn't know that Jesus was bearing the punishment. But thank God that's not the end of the story. That's not the end of the story. Let me rush forward to the end of the story. God graciously makes that same offer for his people when he raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus is raised from the dead and the dominion of death is over. And now all people by repentance and all people by faith can partake of this new creation, this new Israel, this new people of God. He's offering to the very ones who, who blew it. And in his resurrection, he says now, repentance and faith, you can come into the reality of who I am. I am the reconstituted Israel and you can become the people of God. Folks, talk about grace. Jesus is exalted. He's ascended. And He rules. Amen? Say it again. He's exalted. He's ascended. And He rules. Amen? He rules. Now He summons His people to accept His forgiving, His kindly, his peaceful and his gracious transforming rule. Here's the good news. If we turn to him, all our rebellion will be forgiven and forgotten forever. Hallelujah. All our rebellion would be forgiven and forgotten forever. Talk about grace. To create this new society which is known as the kingdom of heaven, Jesus gives the power of the Holy Spirit. I have told you I'm Pentecostal, haven't I? Jesus empowers his people with the Holy Spirit to transform them into being servants of the Lord. He gives power to serve. And we will rule and we were governed not by political means, not by worldly means, but by self-sacrifice as servants who love with everything we have within us. And that's how the kingdom is spread. By loving with everything within us. By identifying with Jesus, we enter into his death and his resurrection, and we can find that new life. Now, mightily empowered by the Holy Spirit, we are to be transformed into likeness of Jesus through whom he will exercise his authority. Right now we live in a very imperfect world. Have you noticed that? And right now you and I aren't exactly perfect. Have you noticed that one? However, the one who set the kingdom in motion is coming back. Come on. The one who set the kingdom in motion is coming back. 
Folks, it's not always going to be like this. He's coming back. And when he comes back, he will finish what he has begun. We're in the between the period where he began it and before he ends it. We're somewhere in the middle there. But he's going to finish what he has begun at his appearing. And when he comes back, he is going to put everything to rights. He's going to make everything conform to his glory, to his person. And there will be the fullness of his glory with unbounded peace, joy, love, and holiness. All rebellion in the whole universe will cease to exist at the appearing of Jesus. Everyone will serve Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit to the honor and glory of God the Father. I have given you a brief sketch of how to read the Gospels. Everything I have said there is found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Folks, that is the Gospel message. The kingdom has come. The story of Israel has been resolved. Now we can go to the Gentiles, to the nations of the world, exercising by the power of the Spirit the authority of the kingdom of heaven, which is expressed in love, compassion, mercy, and self-sacrifice to the ends of the earth. That is the gospel. So what we need to do is give yourself to the story. Live in that story. Meditate in that story. And live out that story for the sake of the world. Folks, the world wants to know what God is like. They want to see Him. Where are they going to see Him? In His people. That's what we are called to do as recipients of the gospel and the grace of God. Amen.